Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Rootless Living Podcast and episode number 55. My name is Damien Ross, and besides being the host of this podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Rootless Living Magazine. If you haven't already, head over to rootlessliving.com and grab a free digital subscription and start reading the only magazine that is covering what it's like to live a life full of travel, work, and exploring, also known as being a digital nomad. On this episode, I get to chat with Kay of A to Z across America, and today you're going to hear about someone that took their own personal tragedy and found a way to cope and bring joy to so many others. Before I say too much, let's get into the episode. All right, with that, I want to welcome Kay to the show. Kay, how are you? Hi, how you going? Nice to uh, meet you all virtually, remotely. I know, it is funny. And this is actually one of the episodes that I don't think I've talked about it ahead of time. I like to call this a dark episode, not dark in the sense that it's like negative or, you know, scary, but in the sense that I know really nothing about you. The the editor, my partner, Nikki's the one that set up the call. And sometimes I like to not know stuff because then it is kind of that that whole like me walking outside, meeting a stranger and getting to know them. From what Nikki said, you you have a really amazing story, company, book and movie, all this different kind of stuff that I want to get into. But first Tell everyone where you are, and then let's go back to when digital nomading was part of your life that you consider it to be part of your life when it started. Where are you right now, though? Yeah, so um, I'm back in Manchester in England, which is where I was um, originally born. The last six years, I've been living in Australia. Um, and then prior to that, most of my time was spent probably across Europe and then obviously with my trip across the UK. So I've kind of come full circle so I'm back in Manchester in the UK where it rains all the time, just so uh, everybody's clear. <laughs> <laughs> I loved I love that my last episode in 2020 was Natasha, who had a really great French accent. And I love that I'm starting 2021 with a really great Britain accent. And so this is a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, I've had some Texas draws and some Tennessee draws, but it's just nice to bring in kind of the European flavor just especially because you know that's what's great about being a digital nomad is it's it's everywhere it's not something that's specific to the united states in any way and that's what gets me really excited about talking to people that are living and doing uh, an interesting lifestyle outside of the united states as well so let's go back to like when you got the bug to start traveling while working and that kind of a thing when was that and where did you go first yeah, so sadly, it's born out of a little bit of tragedy. So uh, indulge me as we go back in time and into a dark space. Um, but basically, I was living in the US. Um, I used to work for a massive shopping mall company. I just finished working on the London Olympics, and I had the opportunity to move to LA. So I was 34. So you can imagine this was a great opportunity. It was one of the uh, big senior leaders in the organization. Um, my husband-to-be, John, so Aussie John, because he was an Australian, um, he also came over with me. Prior, he had been fixing trains for a living and had been in the Royal Air Force before that. So if you can imagine, this is an amazing opportunity, you know, you know kind of hit the big time, living the dream. Arrived in uh, Marina del Rey in California, and I started a new job, um, and he kind of did lots of things getting us settled into Los Angeles. Um, and then, unfortunately, fast forward, um, we went sailing on the Pacific Ocean uh, one afternoon. He just learned to sail um, and sadly, his heart stopped. Um, so he was only 32. And as I said, it was our maiden voyage. Um, I don't sail. 
Um, and so you can imagine it was a fairly scary experience at the time. So um, unfortunately, we, you know, John didn't survive that incident. Um, and what followed next then was a series of events, which then led on me jumping while well, buying an RV and then taking off and going across America. Wow. Well, I, well, first, obviously, I'm very sorry for your loss. That's a that's a that's a tough loss in a tough situation. I can't even imagine kind of what you're going through and being in, you know, I'm originally from Los Angeles and being in Los Angeles, you know, and, and it's just so what a like I don't even really have words from the sense of having such a high and then it coming to such a low. Um, but it does sound like it set you on a course mm. for like a, a really an amazing adventure. I mean, probably an amazing adventure. Obviously you would have loved to have done with John, but take me through that process. I mean, here you are in Los Angeles, uh, you're working for really one of the largest companies and you get in an RV and take off. What was, what was the idea behind that? Because that's gotta be, that's a, that's a, that's a weird, I mean, look, people grieve in different ways. I've, I've, I've watched so many crime shows where people say, look at the way they're grieving. Obviously they had something to do with it. You know And I'm like? No, everyone grieves different. There isn't like a right way to grieve and jumping in an RV and traveling the country sounds like an amazing way to kind of, you know, get over such a tragic event in your life. But, you know, tell me why you decided to jump in an RV and head across the country. Yeah. So what happened next was um, at first my company was super supportive um, and I threw myself into work uh, but then about a year, kind of almost six to eight months later, I began to realize, because I'd been to have um, grief counseling, that this wasn't just grief anymore. So I was having panic attacks, night terrors, and things weren't quite normal. And I was kind of fainting and finding myself unconscious. Um, so basically, long story, um, my employer freaked out, for want of a better phrase, and it ended up, um, they called 911. And I ended up in a mental institution uh, for 10 days, um, almost held hostage in my Amani suit. Um, and then fast forward, um, eventually I got out, got myself a lawyer and then got myself the help. So that was the most important thing. I went to see a famous doctor in LA, Dr. Ashley, who basically helped me start to get on the road of recovery from PTSD because I'd suffered two quite large traumas in a short space of time. And one of the things and the motivation for the journey, one of the things he said to me was, he's, hey, what the hell are you doing sat in you know, Los Angeles? Why don't you just take off? Why don't you go somewhere? Why don't you go and do something different? So that weekend, <clears throat> in fact, after his office, I went straight to the airport and I went to the check-in desk and I went to the lady who said, hello, and I'm looking you know, at the screen. I'm saying, um, I'm just like scrolling. I'm like, uh, hey, how, can I um, can I get to Albuquerque? Albuquerque? She was, she said, uh, oh, you mean Albuquerque, ma'am? I'm like, yes, Albuquerque. Can I get to Albuquerque in a weekend? And she was like, yes, you can. I was like, okay, great. And then when I was on the plane, I had a fantastic weekend in Albuquerque. I began to feel, start to feel a little bit normal. Um, and then in the flight compartment, there was a little magazine. Um, and in there was Bend in Oregon. So I thought, hmm. So I thought maybe the next weekend I'll go to Bend in Oregon. <laughs> and that, I guess, is when the bug for the RV started. Um, and that is when I bought my first RV and then decided to travel across America A to Z. 
That's amazing. Okay, so it sounds like you flew to Albuquerque. Did you buy the RV in Albuquerque or did you fly to Bend, Oregon and buy it there? Yeah, well, how it worked was I went to Albuquerque just for the weekend. I mean, I literally just went to the airport and flew there um, and then found out I could go to Bend in Oregon um, the weekend after. And that's when I kind of got the bug because I realized that actually nobody knew me. I could be whoever I wanted. And this whole tragic story that had set me on this journey, I didn't actually need to tell. I could be anybody I wanted. So at that point, I basically went to San Jose in California, bought my first RV, um, never done that before, um, and then had it all kitted, kitted out. So on the back, I had um, like a little shelf and uh, I had I had a, I put a tin bath back of it because I had this crazy idea I could just cr- grow vegetables. Um, I also had um, like fishing rods fitted Underneath, you know where the windscreen is? I had some actual stands put there and I had all my fishing rods fitted underneath. Um, and then I, I bought some ladders. So I did all these things in order to get the RV kitted out. And then that's when the A to Z bit started. So um, there were three simple rules to my trip. Rule number one was I had to follow the alphabet in order. So A, B, C, D, and so on. Rule number two was that no major towns or cities could be in the book. At the time, I hadn't decided I was going to write a book, but that's kind of a rule that evolved. And then the best one and the most important one was America voted. And wherever they voted is where I went next, even if it was 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. So, for example, I've been through Kansas probably 17 times. I've gone through Oklahoma 22 times. I've seen the Grand Canyon maybe 15 times. So those were the kind of the rules for the trip. And America voted, so I had a social media page, a Facebook page, and I just used to speak to people everywhere I went and get them to write down where they would send me next. And then once I'd finished or seen a place, I then would look to see where the votes were, and then I'd literally jump in the RV and I'd drive. And sometimes it would take me three to 10 days to get to my next destination. Um, and so I did about 3, 300,000 miles in the end and went through three different sets of tires. That is unbelievable. I don't think I've ever heard <laughs> a way of traveling like that in my life. How amazing is that? And how did the, how did the alphabet go? I mean, I know, you know, I mean, spoiler, when we kind of talked just for a minute, I happen to say that I'm in Zion and I get that's the Z, but how difficult was sticking to an alphabet? I mean, obviously Albuquerque and then you went to Bend. Did you go to the Blockbuster in Bend or no? <laughs> yeah probably oh, okay. um, I, what I would do is I'd, I'd basically I'd probably I'd get to a place and then I'd spend as much little time there as I felt I needed to so depending on what was there so for example uh, in the US there's not many places that begin with X so there's uh, Xanadu, X Prairie and a lot of Xenias um, and when I got to Xenia it took me I think three days to get there because I think where did I go from X, Y I can't remember where I went from but Basically, when I got to Xenia, it's a very small town up in Illinois. So it's got a bank, a coffee shop, a train track going through it, um, and then like a post situation. And when I got there, because the RV at this point, I'd also covered it in stuff. So it had stickers and T-shirts and snow globes all stuck to it. And um, so I obviously arrived in town and people were interested to meet me. 
Um, but I began to realise quite quickly that Xenia wasn't a very big place. So the mayor came out to meet me. I met the bank manager. So there's a picture of me with like almost the whole of Xenia, um, all doing the letter X as our symbol. And I literally spent uh, probably about eight hours in Xenia. And then my letter Y was, um, it was always close, but it was going to be Yellowstone or Yosemite. And then basically I set off to go to Yellowstone. How amazing. <laughs> that's so funny. I, I love that. I thought you were going to say the bank teller was the mayor. Like that's how small the town was. Like that's where I thought you were going with that for a second where it's, <laughs> and I've been in some of these really <laughs> small towns and it's funny to me that I feel like small towns get like a bad rap in a way where I think probably some of my most fondest memories in the last, you know, three and a half years have really been in small towns that have a less of a population than probably my graduating high school class for their entire, you know, municipal or town. And it's been really amazing. Do you have a favorite in that A to Z that really surprised you that you really enjoyed? I mean, is there a town there that just really, you know, as people are voting, caught you off guard regards to how much you liked it? Yeah, well, the thing was as well, I, was, I went during the global financial crash. So I was literally going into like major cities like Detroit, where there were tumbleweeds, you know, going through the city. And then, you know, and I went to places in Tennessee um, where I drove through and basically, you know, a guy had bought the whole town because everybody had left because one of the production companies had left. So I, I kind of saw a lot of that as well in that kind of small town place. Um, and then, you know, I was I went to all big cities as well, but they're just not in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were lots of small places that I really liked for many different reasons. Um, I liked Vermilion, which is in Ohio. That was uh, one of my letter V's. I spent a lot of time at lakes. So my letter L was lakes because everybody recommended some kind of a lake. So um, I went to Lake Lure um, in the Carolinas and um, that was amazing. That's where they filmed Dirty Dancing. And I had no idea before I got there. Um, and I went to Ogunquit in Maine, which was the most beautiful village. It's it's like something you'd see in a, in the English, you know, countryside uh, down on the coast. Um, my, I think it's probably easier to do it by state. I had favorite states. So I loved Alaska. I was there a long time because there's just so much to see. Um, I went up to the Bering Sea um, and, you know, did the whole kind of, you know, deadly catch kind of scenarios. Um, I enjoyed the letter K, which was Kauai in Hawaii. So I loved Hawaii. Um, and then, but my favorite state was actually Utah. Um, I called it the screensaver state. Mm. From my experience, you drive around in Utah and you just pull in and you'll just see this fantastic scenery and there's just nobody around. And then you see it then on screensavers, on computers later on. You think, oh, I've been there. So, yeah, but I think I, I agree with you. The, the small towns were the, the best ones for me. Um, and you met just the most lovely people. Um, and, and yeah, you know, the big cities are the big cities. Um, and driving an RV, RV through them was just hilarious. Uh, but no, I think the smaller cities and the campsites, those were just some of the best experiences. It is weird to hear you talking about Utah when I'm here and I'm looking out at the landscape that you're talking about. I mean, literally looking straight out my window, this could be a screensaver. So it's kind of surreal that you're, you know, mentioning that as I'm looking at it. Did the RV make it to Hawaii? Is that something you shipped over? Or did you just fly over and then hang over and fly back? 
Yeah, well, the, the thing that started to happen was when I met people, because I was meeting hundreds of people because my accent, you see, right. everybody would stop and go, oh, my God, where are you from? <laughs> and so I got talking to every, low, low, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I had so many followers on Facebook. And I also um, had an, uh, I, I decided I'd send postcards to elementary schools all across the country of America so that they could follow my trip. The army, because the book um, is for charity, because um, I, I, I didn't expect to write a book. The book kind of just happened a little bit by accident because I met so many people. All of them said to me, hey, you should write a book. Um, and so because the book is for charity, um, I decided that, you know, basically taking the RV uh, down to Alaska and to Hawaii was was the daft idea. It just wasn't, you know, viable economically, particularly for the charities. Um, so I decided not to bother. Uh, but yeah, the other thing which was interesting about my trip was um, I had um, thousands of elementary schools follow my trip as a geography experiment. So um, I would send them postcards from the various places that I went to. Um, and so I had hundreds and thousands of like kids also involved getting in contact saying, oh, how was this place? And, you know, did you see a grizzly bear at Yellowstone? Those types of questions. So it kind of took on, a, you know, it's, it's kind of world of its own in the end. Um, and, and, you know, we did really well for the charities. Um, and yeah, the RV just about survived. Um, so I went through like three sets of tires. Um, but in the end, uh, I didn't need to replace the RV, which was good. And uh, the thing that happened was people started to give me things. So I got snow gloves, stickers, um, all sorts of things. I just couldn't fit in the RV anymore. I didn't want to throw it away. They just felt totally wrong. So I actually started sticking thing on the RV. So I had like the East Coast on one side, the West Coast on the other, and the Midwest on the back. So I started to drive around America like a total hillbilly. <laughs> um, and the RV in the end, it's actually now in the LeMay Museum, uh, which is in Tacoma in Washington. It's actually an exhibition piece up there. So I donated it to them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's called Reggie, Reggie the RV. Uh, so it's been there for the last 10 years. It's still there now. That's amazing. That is so funny. I, I think it's, I don't know, there's something in me that's like, it's funny that a, not a lot of Americans do this and definitely weren't doing this, you know, 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, and again, your, your trip around America was, what was the time frame? I'm, I'm kind of thinking, as you said, financial crisis, like 2007 to 2009. When were you actually doing this? Yeah, that's right. So it's about 2009 I set off um, okay. and it took three years in the end. Um, how I funded it, and this was a good bit, was because my employer had treated me so badly in terms of, um, you know, basically locking me up in a psych ward, which was the worst thing they could have done. Um, I was able to pursue them legally. So actually, they were a bit, they kind of paid for the whole trip. Oh, wow. So it meant that actually the money that I raised could then be used towards the charities. So I the money goes to PTSD charities, as well as the bereavement group in Los Angeles called Our House. And my husband had a sudden cardiac event when we were sailing. Um, so we've also done it for cardiac risk in the young. So that, you know, the, the positive thing about the book is, um, I, you know, I've never written a book before in my life. And I was just writing it as I was on the road, you know, because if you're driving through a state, that normally takes you at least eight hours. So I was just talking away in my dictaphone. Um, and then eventually when I got back, I was able to write the book because I could remember everything that I'd done. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Now, obviously you, you took off without the idea of a book. The book came as you were traveling. 
did it come from you? Did it come from people? Because people always, even with me, when I say I'm a full-time RVer, they're like, oh, you should write a book. And I'm like, there's a lot of people that have been full-time RVers. I didn't invent this in any way. But 2009, you know, there weren't a lot of people outside of being retired that were living, traveling, working in an RV. Did the idea from the book come from you or from outsiders? Um, no, I think just from outsiders, people suggesting, you know, maybe you should, you should write a book. Um, and it just came about by that. But in terms of why, you know, why get an RV when you're suffering from PTSD, because that was what my diagnosis was in the end. You know, if you are having a panic attack or you're feeling depressed or, you know, you have suicidal thoughts, you know, you're in a safe place. There's nothing better to do than live in a, you know, a four by four square. So if you don't feel very well, you just literally pull over, go in the back, lock everything up, feel safe and just stay there until you feel better. So for me, it was the perfect way of recovering from my depression and my, you know, my panic attacks, et cetera. So that was my motivation. Uh, you know, I obviously met the snowbirds going uh, all across America, but my motivation was totally different. Um, and the book just became a little bit of an afterthought. This was, although it sounds, you know, corny, this really was a bit of a journey of recovery for me. Um, and so the idea just came out of, I don't feel very well. I feel better if I'm on the road and nobody knows me. And therefore, I'll just keep going <laughs> until I stop. So in the end, that was actually a journey of three years. So it took me three years to finish. Like I said, I started in Albuquerque and I finished at the letter Z in Zion. That's amazing. I mean, it is a really good point that unfortunately we, and I'll, I, I guess I'll speak in regards to America, that we allow almost titles to be put on someone based on a trauma or some sort of event. And, you know, and, and we keep bringing it up like years later when we meet them, like, you know, how are things going? And, and it really becomes someone's identity. And it's not, it's a, it's a tragic event in their life, but it's not their identity. So I, mean, I completely understand and relate to the idea of removing yourself from that and being able to just go out and do this where people aren't constantly asking you or checking in on you. Cause a lot of times that just can be really heavy. And I can, I can totally see that. Now, when was the book, yeah, um, definitely. when was the book published? Um, so I published it um, probably, I think, about 2012. Um, and it was self-published uh, initially. So I just did it uh, through Amazon and then it got picked up by the various publishing houses. Um, and yeah, it just kind of grew from there. And because I had quite a big following from the journey because of being on Facebook and the elementary schools, etc. You know, the book is, is steadily just ticked over. Because this, the book is actually about the tour across America. It's not actually about my story. That's where the film comes into it. But the actual book itself is a really good RV guide. It basically says that, hey, if you want to go across America, you know, this book is perfect for you. Um, I actually tried to avoid the really sad, you know, build up as to why I made the journey. And in fact, that's that, like I said, that's where the film came from. What I love about, and again, I haven't, you know, full disclosure, I'm not one of those hosts that try to pretend they've read the book, but what I love, what I'm hearing about the book is that I think a lot of people get hung up in this. Well, you've got to research for a long time before your RV and you have to have experience and you have to have a plan and you have to have a map and you have to have a travel and you can't do it alone, especially if you're a woman, you can't go solo and, and your book probably squashes all of that, you know, just from what I'm hearing about your own story in the sense that the decision to get into an RV was pretty quick no experience whatsoever. Not really. This isn't even your, 
your, let's say your country where you're from, you don't have a real understanding of it maybe. And you're a, a single woman traveling alone throughout the country. And it's all these obstacles that people put. I feel like you've just crushed through them and, and really early on. Cause again, I feel like the RV full-time RV kind of thing has really picked up since about 2015, 16. And in the last couple of years, you know, everyone's writing a book. Everyone has a YouTube channel. Um, everyone's doing these things. And obviously you did it really early on and, and really in a, a neat kind of, I hate to use the word precious, but kind of just a really great way of going out and doing it. And what you did it for was amazing. And then just how all this came about, you hinted at the film. So tell me about that. So someone found the book, found the story and decided that they're going to make a, a movie about it. Yeah. So just like the book was a surprise to me. <laughs> um, so the film basically has become a bit of a surprise. So it's been 10 years in the makings. So the book was published, um, you know, just around about that time. Um, and um, yeah, basically somebody contacted me and said, you know, we've heard your story. Um, we'd be interested in actually writing the story about you not necessarily taking the book and turning that into the film because the book is very much a travel book you know we can't believe the story that you have you know you had this tragic thing happen to you the employer treated you terribly and you've done this amazing journey you know would you be interested in talking to us about it and that's what happened so um that then resulted in uh, people getting involved in the script um, the, then the cast was written. So this is um, basically um, you know somebody in the UK who likes to pick up independent films. And um, we've just heard probably in the last six months that we're actually going to go into production. Um, the cast is now 70% tied up. I've had to sign all these super scary non-disclosure things. Um, and yeah, we're due to start production uh, next year. So probably next June in Arizona. Um, and we'll, yeah, the, the, you know, the book and the, the story will then, I guess, continue. And, and for me, the motivation for the book and the film and everything is about giving money back to the charities. People out there, you know, you indicated about this perhaps being a dark um, kind of, you know, podcast. You know, the, the important thing for me was, you know, I was in a very difficult place in my life. And, you know, just to take off and to take those risks, I think having my PTSD actually helped me do that. But also, I think it's a, a journey of, you know, solace for people. And, you know, if you are having a different time, ranch, I went to the Super Bowl. I did I did all these amazing things. I had a week with the Click Close Clan, a week with the Mormons, a week with the Amish. I had all these amazing experiences. And I think people just get, you know, hung up on fear and worrying about, you know, what could happen. My experience was amazing. The, all the Americans I met were lovely. I had no real like trouble um you know and i i did i traveled you know for three years pretty much on my own so if there's anybody out there who's thinking oh that's you know way too scary my advice would be just go for it you've got nothing to lose yeah and i think that is a mindset that you know i mean i what's the term i want to use where i think you even brought it up in a sense is like the the hippie kind of age of the 70s this kind of like yeah let's do it like i feel like we've lost that as humans where, you know, that we can just take these chances that we don't see how valuable experiences can be over things and careers and stuff like that. When the movie got pitched to you, did you instantly think of someone that should play you? I've always thought about that. If someone said to me, Hey Dean, we're going to do a movie about your life. Like who would I like instantly be like, Ooh, I know who should play me. 
did you have that moment or is it just too surreal in itself to not even go there? Yeah, well, I think the only thing I specified was um, I wanted, obviously, the death of my husband, John, to be done respectfully. So that was important. And and John was an Australian, so I wanted an Australian actor. And then for myself, I basically wanted somebody who was from where I'm from. So Manchester in England, the Northwest, you know, we speak a certain way. We have mannerisms in a certain way. We have a comedic charm that people like. Um, and I basically wanted, and I said to them, I just want it to be an up and coming actress who nobody's heard of, who is looking for that bit of a break. Mm. Um, so um, when we approached the actor who is playing me, um, which was probably, I don't know, six a uh, year ago now, um, and it's changed over the years. You can imagine um, as things change uh, and, you know, the film took a while to get going. Um, but no, now, so we've we've basically approached that person and that person will take it to the next level. And now their career is also taking off. So my film is just an addition to all the really good work they've been doing in the last 18 months. And they actually think this could be a shout for her to get her first Oscar. So that would be pretty cool if that came to fruition. That is awesome. I'm actually, I was going to ask you because you said actor and then obviously right now you said her. I was a little concerned that thinking that sometimes, you know, my family has worked in the television movie industry and, you know, I was probably the one that didn't go that route, obviously. But a lot of times these roles can get switched up where the story of you could be now a male and John would be Jane, who, you know what I mean? Like they do that a lot of times in these stories. And I was I was a little concerned when you said it. I was like, no, don't tell me they switched the gender roles. It's so much more powerful if it's a woman going across the country. So that's good to hear that they did not. Because sometimes they will in the sense that no one would ever believe a woman from the UK would travel, you know, 300,000 miles across the US. But clearly you did. So that's good to hear. And then out of, okay, so the movie's still in works, but there's also a company that you have that sounds like it really came out again of this kind of uh, lifestyle too, and just things that you learned and then you, you drew from that and started a little bit of a business. Tell me about that as well. Yeah. So I hope this resonates with your kind of, you know, um, you know, digital remoteness, you know, in this crazy pandemic time. Um, about six years ago, um, I established a company, it's called Cosmo um, and it's based in Australia. So K-O-Z-M-O, Cosmo Consulting. And we started doing some work with the Australian government looking at this trend which is towards co-living and co-working so for the nomads out there this will kind of resonate i hope for you so it's basically looking at all the different models that co-living and co-working can develop so you've got you know your typical kind of you know kibbutz where a group of people live in a creative type of bubble but now there's been a big trend over the last six years for you know, people of a certain age to now to start to live together. So if you think about millennials who might be, you know, professionals, young professionals who are feeling probably a bit lonely, left the family home, don't have kids yet. If you think about older people, so people who are retirees who might have lost their partner. Now you think about that group in the middle, the divorcees who have had to leave the family home. If you think about that as a co-living and co-working space, you could have an amazing situation for those groups of people. So, you know, just because a person's of a certain age doesn't mean they can't play arcade games, which would suit the millennial, just like having a fine dining restaurant would also perhaps suit all of those groups. So what I'm finding and what my company found was there's so many different ways of co-living and co-working now that we kind of hit a sweet spot about six years ago. And when we started to do this for the Australian government, 
Um, so we were literally building smart, sustainable cities for the Australian government and moving people away from the traditional family home in an urban environment to co-living and co-working spaces that suited their individual needs. So it's something which um, I think might resonate, you know, with the, you, you know, the people out there who who enjoy this kind of a lifestyle. It's something for them to maybe do their own research on. And, and my company is kind of growing from strength to strength, particularly in this pandemic time when we start to see empty buildings, you know, and cities emptying out. Yeah, I've been talking a while in regards to, I think it's something I'll probably record later today is, you know, the idea of going to an office to work in a cubicle. I think those, I hope those days are done. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, you know, there's customer facing jobs that require, you know, hours and people to be there, but you're literally leaving your home to drive from your couch to a cubicle to work in a cubicle and then come home to your couch. There's really no reason you can't do it from your couch. And I also, when I have conversations with people, especially with my friends back in Los Angeles, one of the things that keeps them tied to Los Angeles is family. And I've always had the conversations. Have you guys ever thought about like all packing up together and like buying out a small cul-de-sac that's probably all been foreclosed and you can all live on the same block. You're just living in a better location, probably better economical stuff going on, better cost of living. So it's interesting to hear you talking about what you have going on with your company too, because I think, you know, these trends kind of ebb and flow. And I feel like the co-living has always been, it's looked upon kind of weird. And I hope that it, it gets looked upon as a really great alternative. You know, I think people like a lot of times, unfortunately, like the co-living stuff, isn't that like Waco and, you know, Jonestown, it's like those kind of things. And it's like, no, <laughs> you're not joining a cult, relax. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Amish areas where even though they're living in separate homes, they definitely come together as a community when something needs to get built or if someone is injured and farming still needs. It's a real sense of community. So this will be uh, interesting to learn more about myself, too, because I, uh, you know, we talk about all the time with this RV community. It would be great if there was a place where a bunch of us full timers could meet up, you know, a couple times a year even and spend a month or two. And just have that sense of community, but then go back on our ways. And um, yeah, I, I love it. I love the idea of it. I'm so, you know, proud is probably a weird word to use. But I'm really proud that you're, you're doing that and getting the education out there. Because it really is something that just people need to get educated on. What has been the, the biggest obstacle with yeah, that? Definitely. It, and I think, yeah, well, I think the thing with it is, is like you said, you know, people automatically think, you know, of kibbutz or cults. But actually, there's a whole range of different co-living and working solutions. So, you know, you've got like the high end. So um, in the UK, we turned the BBC television centre into a co-living and co-working space because basically they were moving somewhere else. And so that became Soho House, which I think people are familiar with, where you join in a membership club. And that's the, you know, the top end. Whereas there's other examples of homelessness where actually you convert empty buildings in cities or towns which you basically create pods because quite often homeless people don't actually want to stay somewhere, but occasionally they might want something. And then there's obviously the underlying problems around addiction, et cetera. But, you know, we've seen a situations where quite a lot of people quite like the idea of having a pod that they can actually go and use and have security on the grounds. And then there's like the Nordic example, you know, where it's idyllic, it's a smart city, zero neutral buildings, um, and you've got everything there, you know, the countryside, fishing, golf, 
uh, and then there's the other side of it, which is the student accommodation, which has now been combined with hotel accommodation. So as well as having event centres, they're also now having auditoriums and lectures. Um, and then you've got the classic, you know, living in Bali, you know, co-living. Working, is It's very adaptive. So one size doesn't suit and fit all. It's all about what actually suits those individual people. And that's what we were creating in Australia. So the Australian government were quite forward thinking in that respect and looking at, you know, empty cities and how do they sustain Australia as a country when the infrastructure in the major cities couldn't support the growth they were having. So, yeah, it's definitely an interesting space. Um, You know, your example of, you know, meeting up in, you know, this, you know, digital nomad lifestyle, you know, why not? You know, there's, and that doesn't mean you just all go to a festival. Maybe, you know, you're given certain things that you might not be able to always have, you know, maybe it's about having pop-up tents for lawyers or, you know, chiropodists or dentists. And, you know, we found that in the lower income people that actually they've come out of prison or perhaps, you know, recovering from addiction. We can put them in a co-op lifestyle where actually, you know, nobody, not everybody has to have a lawnmower. Not everybody has to have tools. Maybe you create um, a tool shed, you know, maybe every Wednesday you get food from the food bank and people cook for everybody else in that low income situation. And, you know, you, you basically get the support you need. So they do have pop up people come in, you know, counsellors, doctors, dentists to help those people re-educate themselves and get them back into the community. And also kind of in order to have one of those houses, you have to go and study. So the house is free as long as you go to university. You know, so this co-living and co-working space is something which I think, you know, all of your listeners will be really interested in maybe looking at and um you know, just doing their own research and finding out what suits them for the future. I think you had me at a community with one leaf blower. That to me sounds amazing because <laughs> then you could, it's not, there's 15 leaf blowers going on at the same time. There's one leaf blower in the community. People have to check it out. Maybe there's only a couple days a week that you can actually use the leaf blower. That in itself, you have me sold. I would join that community just so I don't have to listen to a leaf blower <laughs> every single day like I did when I was living in Los Angeles. Yeah, I was just going to say the other thing which is interesting now about the pandemic and what's now speeded this all up is, you know, we're going to have empty cities and empty offices because why would you want to go back to traveling for an hour as a commute? Nobody's going to want to do that, but nobody wants to work from home full time either. So our experience with the early government was we had to engineer those social encounters You know, so every third Thursday, the accountants would come into the office with the HR team and then we might have an event or something for them. And then if you think about recruitment and retaining people in the future, you know, the the younger people are not going to want to join a company where they don't have these types of options. So if companies don't wake up to it soon, I think they're going to find themselves in a bit of trouble. You know, what do you do with car packages or, you know, if you've been given a car or, or, you know, do we now need to provide people with home there's that whole change piece not just around the building itself you know how do you adapt an office building for it to become a it's a massive new area and something me and my company we're, we're super excited about and unfortunately the pandemic seems to have speeded it up no i bet i think i just recently read somewhere where i think both apple and facebook were seeing such incredible results from people working remote but i also you know hear from people where they they still would like some sort of interaction with their coworkers. It doesn't have to be daily, but you know, at least if there was something weekly. So 
it's interesting to see what a business model will look like moving forward outside of these, you know, massive offices with cubicles. How will it change? You know, and, and, and do we even need to work Monday through Friday anymore? Like I talk about that all the time. Is that even necessary? You know, you're starting to learn where people, when they're at home and they're really focused, they can probably get as much done as they were getting done in five days. They get done in three because there's not all these distractions, you know, and there isn't this, I don't know about you, but you know, living in Los Angeles and driving 90 minutes to work, which was my commute. By the time I got to work, I was mentally exhausted. Like I needed my first half hour at work just to kind of recruit from the 90 minute commute, you know? And it's like, and then again, I had to do that later in the evening. I had to do this 90 minute back home and I needed like 30 minutes to kind of get back together before I started dealing with, you know, family and kids and stuff. And I think you are right that this pandemic is teaching a lot of people what they were doing that they didn't realize they were doing. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So I want to make sure that people, you know, no matter what they're interested in, if they're interested in the book, they're interested in connecting with you, they're interested in, you know, maybe make sure that they're following when this movie comes out to then obviously the the company that you're working for. And then even some of the charities you've mentioned as, as much information as you want to give, I'll put it down in the show notes. So folks, if you're listening, you don't have to write this down. You can just go to the show notes and click on these links. But Kay, any information you want to share where people can find any of those things, you know, go ahead and give it to me now and I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. And and also I just want to say thank you to America, you know, for my experience. Um, I'm, I'm sure I might have met some of you on my journey and um, I totally felt safe in your country and I had an amazing time around campsites, and you know, Walmart car parks. And um, so, you know, I guess I've always on my journey, I always said thank you to the Americans for making me feel so welcome. That's awesome. So tell me where people can, uh, where people can find you, find the book, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, A to Z across America, um, they'll find me all over Google with that one. Um, and then www.cosmoconsulting.com. That's the company. Um, and the film, I guess I'll, I'll keep you posted on the film. Um, we know what the working title is, but it's not finally decided. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah. And if there's some sort of a premiere here in the States, you know, definitely, you know, let us know. We'll definitely want to let the community know as well, too. I think people will be really interested because I think there's only like two or three movies that even have anything to do with RV and people lose their mind in regards to that. So that'll be really fun to, you know, be able to watch your journey yeah. on the big screen. I'm excited for it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe you can all join me on the red carpet. We'll have a red, we'll have an RV red carpet. I'll go and get Reggie out of um, LeMay in Washington. And now we can have an RV red carpet. That sounds kind of fun. I actually just thought of something. I thought you're brilliant in the sense that this could be storage for an RV that you're not paying for. You donate your RV to a museum and let them hold on to it. But then you can go back and pick it up in 10 years. You basically got 10 <laughs> years of storage for your RV in the United States. You might be the most brilliant woman I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Kay, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties getting us uh, connected, but it was really great to hear your story and get to know you. And, you know, again, yeah, keep us posted on the movie. We'll make sure to share it with the Realist community and, you know, help get it out there in any way we can. And uh, it was just so much fun to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Thanks for the invitation, guys. 
Well, another great episode, and I really enjoyed getting to hear Kay's story and getting to know her. I really do look forward to the movie. I hope you do as well. And hopefully we will find a way to help get the word out back to you when that movie actually starts to premiere. And who knows, maybe we'll actually even have a screening ourselves. If you want to connect with Kay or find out more about the movie, please click the links in the show notes. Also, just a friendly reminder, if you're enjoying the Rootless Living podcast or the magazine, make sure to let your friends and family know by sharing us on your favorite social media channel. Do it right now. Jump on the Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you are, and let people know about the Rootless Living magazine and that they can grab it for free. And like always, if you think you know someone that would make a good guest, or that guest might even be you, please send us an email at podcast at rootlessliving.com. Again, that's podcast at rootlessliving.com. And let's see if we can help tell your story. Until next week, stay rootless.